And so, and once they go there on that front, then it's kind of a slide into nominalism or it's an exploration into new age or it's a wholehearted embrace of atheism. And I've Definitely. just watched many people take that road. And for many people, that was a one-way street. And what I saw with Jordan Peterson was people were coming back on that same road wow. towards the church and the Bible and Christianity. And I said, this is huge. This is, is enormous. My guest today has been called the pastor of the intellectual dark web. Paul Vanderclay was a simple pastor of a small church in California. By his own accounts, no one was waiting in line outside the church to hear him preach. One day, a church member invited him to experiment with the world of podcasting and YouTube, and, and Paul did it as really just a fun opportunity to connect with a member of his congregation. As you'll hear in today's episode, life not long after that experiment would radically change for Paul. Paul started recording talks on theology and philosophy, and then one day he discovered this weird Canadian psychologist named Jordan Peterson, who was exploring some very intriguing ideas at the intersection of psychology, philosophy, and theology. So he started talking about this Jordan Peterson guy online. And in short matter of time, he had thousands of subscribers and people emailing him and calling him at his church and wanting to meet up with him to talk about these deep philosophical and theological ideas. He even caught the attention of Jordan Peterson himself, who at this point had gone pretty viral, and then came on Paul's program to talk with him about these really important ideas. Now, with well over 10,000 subscribers to his YouTube channel and hundreds of thousands of views on his videos, Paul is a key voice in this intellectual dark web phenomenon, connecting historic Christian theology to questions people have about meaning and purpose. Oh, and he hasn't given up the meaningful work of being a simple pastor in a small church either. I hope you enjoy today's conversation with my new friend, Paul Vanderclay. I happened to, uh, so I, I thought I'd tell you a little bit about how I came across your videos and what you've been doing. Um, for about a year, I was meeting with 10 to 20 guys, primarily guys. There were some, there were some girls in the group as well in their early twenties to mid twenties. Most of them had been former students of mine. I had taught theology and biblical studies courses in, in Christian high schools for about 10 years. And uh, a lot of them were former students of mine. And they were hitting this phase of life. They're in their early 20s. Um, they'd grown up in evangelicalism. And now they're brushing up against the larger world outside of it. And uh, we've been getting together... Uh, for essentially, they, they'd come to me and say, hey, we, we still want to explore theology and philosophy. Now, wow. we're, we're not going to go to school for it yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because um, it, it doesn't, <laughs> right, right, because we have to eat and, you know, we see how you live and, <laughs> and uh, our parents, right, right, our, 
our parents uh, our parents want us to do stem and all that other stuff too so um but there was still this hunger and appetite to continue to explore the deep meaningful questions of life and to engage with those things so we were getting together and uh it was really wonderful profitable conversations but a lot of these guys had uh stumbled upon the work of jordan peterson and coming from this Christian background or this evangelical background, there were things about Peterson that they identified as uh, overlapping or, or similar to the story that they had heard about reality in their Christian narrative. But simultaneously, were coming to me with all sorts of questions like, well, I, I'm not really sure what to make of this guy. So... Um, I had come to this point where, you know, I'm married with three kids. I had started working uh, for a new church and had really come to this point where I was like, I just can't, you know how it is. I, I don't have the time of day to continually meet with people and to sit down and, and, and I love doing it. So someone had thrown out, well, what if you just start recording your conversations and do something like a podcast? And so I was like, great, well, maybe that'd be a good way for me to help all these people that are wrestling with Jordan Peterson. So all I really initially start, wanted to do was to help people unpack some of the theology of Jordan Peterson. So I did this, put it on YouTube, shared it on you know the various podcast platforms, and I, I got a really good response. And then your videos started popping up on my YouTube homepage, <laughs> and I started listening, and I was like, wow, you know, this is, uh, I thought I was the only weirdo. <laughs> I thought I was the only weirdo out there who cared enough about this to really offer some nuanced theological critique and to really grasp, I think, the significance, like the cultural significance of what Peterson is doing in our day and age. So anyways, that's a little bit of my background and then how I, how I came to discover your stuff. So um, for, the, for those that are listening, um, could you just share a little bit about your own, your own story, what you do vocationally, how now you've become, I mean, I've heard some people refer to you as the, the pastor of the intellectual dark web, which I don't know if you're comfortable with that or not. But can you tell can you tell people that maybe aren't familiar with what you're doing and have just been listening to my podcast uh, a little bit of your story? Well, I grew up. My father pastored a racial reconciliation church in Patterson, New Jersey, and in in the Christian Reformed Church, which is a Dutch Calvinist denomination. And so I did all my growing up years in Patterson, going to a Dutch Calvinist day school and going to a black church on weekends. So that's <laughs> that's how I grew up. My after I went to Calvin College and Calvin Seminary, which are the denominational schools for the Christian Reformed Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. After that, I was a missionary in the Dominican Republic for seven years and then pastoring this church in Sacramento, California for the last almost 22 years. And similar to the church I grew up in, this is a very diverse, small Christian Reformed Church in a distressed neighborhood in Sacramento, California. The I've always been heavily involved with denominational things in the Christian Reformed Church, things involved in, in the regional denomination here as well, but also always interested in uh, loving God with my mind. So always a self-learner in terms of theology and philosophy. I had blogged for years because that's um, I, I needed I needed a way to process 
and to express. And even if nobody read my blog, it didn't matter because the blog was a way for me to process. I, I also, as a practice, as a pastor, took on the discipline. When I was in seminary, one of our church history professors said, you know, once you become a pastor, you should take it upon yourself to to follow great theologians. And so take time in your ministry to do deep dives into Augustine or Luther or Calvin or C.S. Lewis. And and so I'd, I've always been a lifelong learner, so I've, I've always done that kind of thing. In, 20, in 2006, I, in many ways, I was sort of burning out. There, there were a bunch of things in my life that I I needed to work hard on, and so one of the things that I did was I worked on I worked on Tim Keller for about five six years, and I did a deep dive into Tim Keller, and I listened to all of his sermons, or at least most of his sermons. I listened to every lecture I could find in MP3 online. I blogged about him incessantly. I'd outline his sermons because I saw someone who was able to engage skeptical cosmopolitan New Yorkers in a way that I clearly wasn't able to. And so I wanted to learn from him. So I did a deep dive into Tim Keller to try to figure out what made him tick. After about five, six years, interest kind of subsided and went back into other things and read a lot of Rod Dreher and his blog. And Rod on Rod Dreher's blog popped up Jordan Peterson one day, I think probably the National Review piece about him. And I thought, well, that's interesting. What's what's this Canadian psychology complaining about uh, uh, non-binary pronouns for? I wouldn't have imagined that. <laughs> and so it just kind of tucked it in the back of my head and went on about my business. I, I had seen a lot of the this stuff happening in in the life of youth in the region and thinking about what's 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 going on with this because because language is often a tell of deeper things going on beneath because we signal with language and obviously the denomination wrestling with same-sex marriage, those kinds of issues. I was involved in some of those kinds of conversations via my blogging. And, and then Jordan Peterson came up again and I saw the suspender video where he, I, I, I was really impressed by how he carried himself in that video. And then I, I wasn't a YouTuber at all. I would just go to YouTube for random things, but I never watched it really. And then I found the McMaster video of him in this room. And he was, you know, he, he was clearly frustrated and a bit disgusted, but he was also self-composed. Mm. And, and that really impressed me. So I started digging a little bit more and discovered that he was doing a biblical series in a theater. And I thought, oh, okay, so he's some crazy evangelical who somehow managed to keep his head down and be a token evangelical. Now he's and, coming out. That's right, at University <laughs> of Toronto, and now he's, you know, he's gonna, he's gonna fly his evangelical flag. Then I listened to the biblical series that not nope, <laughs> he's, definitely he's not. no evangelical. <laughs> and then I began to notice. So another thing that I had really been thinking a lot of, almost continually for the last number of years was the disconnect between, let's say someone is an evangelical fundamentalist, reads only the King James Bible, reads Genesis 1. Well, if you, if you, if you read the King James Bible, you read Genesis 1, you very much get the picture that the world is flat with a dome on the top of it and with 
you know, the temple of God on top of that and the sun, moon and stars are within this dome, within the firmament. And even, even in college, I used to, my mother-in-law was a fundamentalist Baptist and I used to kind of poke her at some of this stuff. And, and once in fact, she and I were having a conversation about this and I said, well, get out your Bible. And so she got out her King James Bible and I noticed that she had penciled in corrections. I said, now, mom, um, um, you're, you're a fundamentalist Baptist. You're not allowed, you're not allowed, to, allowed pencil to do that. Corrections to your, your King James Bible. And well, but you know, yeah, yeah, but, 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 so you have this, you have this ancient Near East document with an ancient Near East cosmology that the Bible is, that's assumed, you know, in the early parts of the Bible. And we live in a world where no one buys that. I had met, this is before Peterson, I had met a young man who had began coming to church, who began to get to know him because I'm a pastor and we'd get together. And he, he, he told me his story and he told me about how, you know, he had grown up evangelical and he knew the right and the wrong things to do, but he kept getting drawn over into the wrong. And he was always wrestling with pornography, with drugs and alcohol, but, but he had also along the way picked up a wife and had a daughter. And he realized very quickly that unless he became a very serious Christian, and really inhabited the world of the Bible, he was he was not going to keep, you know, porn and drugs and alcohol away, and this was going to destroy his family. And he he loved his wife and he loved his daughter and didn't want to destroy his family. So, and this is what really took me by surprise, he decided to embrace a flat earth. And I was like, what? Wow. <laughs> so... And yeah, and I, I began to talk to him yeah. about, you know, differences in, in cultures and Augustine on, on Genesis and Calvin on Genesis and all of this stuff and completely not impressed. You know, I no pastor, I've heard all of this. I'm, you know, I believe in a flat earth. I believe the moon lunar landing was a hoax. And, mm. you know, that's that's end of story for me. That's that's where I'm going to park. And I thought, well, I'd known a variety of flat earthers in the Dominican Republic, not because they had taken this on, but just because they lived and looked at the world in a phenomenal, phenomenological way and said, well, the, the world is flat and the, the ocean meets the sky. I can see right. it from my island. Right. So, and I thought, well, I'm not going to push him on this because I would rather that he keep his family intact than, than try and push this point. But he also, his, his, his job aspirations was that he was going to get a PhD in biology. And I thought, well, <laughs> that could get interesting down the road, but for now, you know, I'm not going to fight you right. on this. Right. But but it, it continued to push the fact that Christians are living in two worlds, and this is a problem because how do we put these worlds together? And so the 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 Bible, the Bible science thing was always a a, a difficult thing for Christians to piece together. And then I was listening to Jordan Peterson's lectures, and I thought he is doing an interesting concordism between the science and the Bible in a way I've never heard before. And, and this approach is bringing atheist people to be at least intrigued and sometimes convinced about biblical authority. That's new. Evangelicals, you know, you watch William Lane Craig, you, you watch ever since Darwin, 
evangelicals have been fighting this losing battle against Darwin and Darwinianism. And, and it seems that when Christians fight that battle, more often than not, and I'm not going to dismiss those few people for whom that battle, you know, it goes the Christian way. Uh, Christians have been fighting a losing battle on that front for a very long time. And so when Christians go down, usually what happens is Christians, they, they okay, I give up. I believe in Darwin, not this fundamentalist. I, I, I believe I, I have more respect for Darwin than Ken Ham. Okay. So mm -hmm. many, many Christians go there. Yeah. And so, and once they go there on that front, then it's kind of a slide into nominalism or it's an exploration into new age or it's a wholehearted embrace of atheism. And I've Definitely. just watched many people take that road. And for many people, that was a one-way street. And what I saw with Jordan Peterson was people were coming back on that same road wow. towards the church and the Bible and Christianity. And I said, this is huge. This is, is enormous. Is. And, and so I decided, oh, I have to figure out what this guy is doing also because so i have i'm part of a denomination i have good friends preachers i preachers and thinkers i really respect who have churches in toronto that have plenty of empty seats and here this canadian psychologist is charging 40 bucks ahead and packing out this 600 seat auditorium and people are traveling from all over the world to hear him what is going on <laughs> <laughs> and so I decided that I, and, you know, I was blogging about it and I was trying to talk to other pastors about it. And I was kind of trying to say, this is, this is really important. This is something is really, and I was ah, 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 kind of a lot of dismissing. And I thought, ah, don't you see how important this is? There is a sort of snobby dismissal of Peterson whether it's in theological academia or I, and I'm not sure, you know, no matter what somebody thinks about Peterson's ideas, I just can't for the life of me understand why people look at this phenomenon and, and don't consider it a significant, I mean, to me, some of what he is doing and what's happening with the, like the intellectual dark web, it'll take some history to really properly analyze it. But this is like, this has got to be like, you know, on par with John Locke and the Enlightenment in many ways. What what happens here could be a pivotal turning point in Western civilization and the sorts of dialogues this guy is having. And as you're saying, the people that he's bringing to the table, I love how you just put it. Like it was like the path that people took to to leave the Christian story, or at least the path that they felt like they had to take to leave the Christian story. It's like, he's like reversing the flow of traffic. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and, 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 and I'm watching this and, and I'm, I'm seeing this. And so I had blogged about it. I'd written about it on online forums and stuff. And nah, nah, nah. and I thought there's something about YouTube with this because I'd been, I'd been rereading Neil Postman's amusing ourselves to death. And I was thinking about media and I thought there's something about YouTube. So why don't I make a video? And I've been thinking about YouTube a lot actually before that, because you recognize that people don't read books. So mm. how, especially to, men, I mean, not to be stereotypical, men. but no, that's exactly right. anecdotally true. <laughs> yep. And, and it's, and it's also true. I, once I got into the Peters thing, I noticed 
women read 12 Rules for Life, men watched the lectures, um, right. generally speaking, not always, but generally speaking. So, so then I made a video and I posted it on my channel and I had 15 subscribers uh, because I had mostly done on my channel the Freddie and Paul show, which is a uh, a member of my church. Um, he's on disability. He came to me one day and he said, he's a rapper. He came to me and said, Pastor Paul, you and I should do a TV show together. <laughs> I love it. Freddie, I, love I don't know it. if that's going to happen. So I, I said, it. I'll tell you what, when I take him out to lunch about once a month or so, I said, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll take my, I'll take my phone and we'll do about little five minute shows. It'll be a kind of a variety show. You can rap and I'll ask you questions and we can talk about sports, whatever you want to talk about. And we'll call it the Freddie and Paul show. So I was just posting it on my YouTube channel. I had posted sermons on my channel for when people would miss church. And, okay, here's yeah. the sermon you missed. I just done nothing with it. And so I made a video about Jordan Peterson. I just, you know, basically a pastor, you know, has three things about Jordan Peterson. And, well, then about a day I had 300 subscribers. I thought, whoa. And then, you know, a couple of weeks I had 1,000 subscribers. And then, and then 2000, and I thought, okay, 2000, that's enough. I don't, I don't, I, 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 I wanted to have some new conversation partners. I wanted to play with this. I, I didn't, I, now, you know, 2000 is enough. I want to stop here. And, but at the same time, so then I started making videos and the next week in church, someone comes into church, brings me this poster <laughs> and, and says, I've never been to church before in my life, but I saw your video, and so I'm here. And, wow. you know, still in church today every week. And, and it wasn't like you were um, – it wasn't like you were pastoring a, a very large mega church or something like that, right? It's, my church is laughably small, um, la you know, hysterically unsuccessful. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so – and then I start getting emails. And the emails are people telling me their story. And and then I get requests, you know, can 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 and people start calling my because my number's out there because I'm a pastor. It's you know, you can you can right. find it. People start calling me, people start emailing me, and people want to talk to me. And it's like, well, what what am I gonna do? Turn my back and say, No, right. I'm 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 only a pastor to this little group here. I'm not gonna be a pastor to plus the fact that as a pastor of a small church. You go, you go days, weeks without someone coming to you and say, could you tell me more about the Bible and Jesus? I mean, in a place like Sacramento, California, you, you present yourself as a pastor and people just kind of like, right. you know, well, that's nice. Let me leave because I don't <laughs> want to talk to you. And, and now I've got this stream of people coming to me and they've got questions about God and Jesus and the Bible. And, and, and so it's like, well, what should I do as a pastor? Well, I should talk to these people. So I start talking to these people and I start talking to these people online and I start realizing I'm saying similar things over and over again to these people. And so what, so then I began asking, you know, would, would it be okay if I would record this and post this conversation? And some of the, many of the conversations were not appropriate to post because they were too personal, but some of the conversations were, and people were open to share their story online. And so I started sharing those on my channel. And so, and, and I kept and my other videos are just, I'm trying to figure Jordan Peterson out so I can sit here in my little office all by myself and think my little thoughts. But the reason I started blogging was I needed to get it out there in order to process. 
And so I thought, well, why don't I just keep processing my thoughts on video? And people are like, your videos are really helpful. So, okay, I better keep doing those too. So, and now here a year and some later, I've, you know, I was in Australia last month because there are a group of people in Australia who said, we, we think what's happening with Jordan Peterson is really important, and we think you've got something to say about this, so we're going to fly you out here and uh, have you talk about this with us. And it's like, what kind of a crazy world is this? So, <laughs> so here so I am. Amazing. That's so amazing. <laughs> Unbelievable. And so you're actually not only you know hosting these conversations online, I've heard you share elsewhere that you, you've had like physical meetups, like you've uh, opened up your, your, your church or met at various places, just posted something on like meetup.com and people like show up to talk about this stuff. That's right. And and that was new too. So I started this and a friend of mine in Southern California says, well, you got to have meetups. I said, what? He says, no, you got to go to meetup.com and post it. And some of the other people who had approached me in town said like, can we do a meetup or something like that? And I thought, well, I don't know if anyone will come, but I'm, you know, <laughs> sure. hey, 85 bucks for meetup.com. And, you know, churches try all kinds of crazy things right. to keep people in the door. VBS. And Are you giving fun. away any cars this Sunday? Yeah, candy. You know, <laughs> oh, it's Halloween. Let's rot your teeth and, you know, set you up for adult diabetes. Um, this is what <laughs> churches do. And so I thought, okay. And so I just meetup.com, Jordan Peterson meetup here at Living Stones. What do we do? I don't know, but I'll just put it up. You know, dozen people show up. And... And so we start talking and I thought, you know, well, we'll just talk and see how long that goes. I said, well, at two hours, I'll kind of call time and anybody just who wants to leave can leave. Well, what are we going to do? Well, we'll go around the circle and introduce ourselves and maybe we'll watch a video together and see where it goes. And so two hours, I say, OK, anybody can leave. But if you want to stay, you can stay because, you know, it's it's now nine o'clock and I don't have to go to bed right now. And well, at one thirty in the morning, my wife calls the church and says, uh, are you okay? It's 1.30. Because when the phone rang at 1.30, I thought, oh, I know who that is. I'm in so much trouble. Because she's worried about me. Because she, she's like, who are these people? And and so after that, I figured out I needed a, I, I kick you all out at 11 o'clock. So I, I needed that. But, you know, we're at 1.30 in the morning, we're still going. And I had never, you know, if, Pastor of a church, you know, anyone can come and talk to him. Nobody would come. Jordan Peterson meetup, a dozen people show up. And so once or twice a month, we continue to do it. And almost every time someone new shows up and all we do is talk. And we don't, you know, we usually start the conversation with, how did you get interested in Jordan Peterson? But the conversations go all over. He's sort of been a catalyst for, you know, IDW type stuff. People talking about all sorts of things. And and a lot of people think, well, it's a political thing. Well, actually, with our meetup, if you start talking politics at the meetup, people will very quickly tell you, um, you know, if if you're here to 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 trumpet or celebrate a certain right. political perspective, we don't do that here. You can do that someplace else. We want to talk about um, we want to talk about what's important and meaningful. And and so it'll be religion or philosophy or psychology and that's and, and it's it, it's in many ways again sort of what you did in a dorm room late at night at college but these are all grown people some are very successful some are you know basement dwellers living with their mom um you know it's a very diverse group of people but it yeah and so it's the 
you know, it's become some of the most fruitful ministry I've ever done in my life. And I <laughs> amazing. I know. Absolutely amazing. It's incredible. And that's that's, that's why my life for the last year and so. It's unbelievable, Paul, because I, you know, I, I hear your story. And I think of all the ways, you know, I'm a, I'm a pastor myself. I think of all the ways, and I've, I've been in, I'm only 35, but I've been in vocational ministry since I was 19. And I think of all the church growth things I've read and all of the meetings you sit through about, boy, how can we get butts and seats? And nobody says it quite like that, right? right, right. Because it is, it is, in most cases, it's motivated from a heart of going, there are people that we know are lost and are struggling and we, we want to reach them. Why aren't they coming? Yep. 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 And yet this, this Canadian psychologist, all the, all you do is start talking about him and, and he's, he's like the gateway drug into this world of ideas that has been, for some reason, uh, there's been this division that has separated people from feeling like they could come to a pastor to talk about the most meaningful things in life. And um, Barna, I'm sure you're familiar with all the Barna research. You're like a Christian thought guy. I've listened to your stuff. All the Barna research, you know, among young adults who grew up in the church and had formative experiences in the church in their teenage years. Barna, I think this is in 2014 surveyed those that had left the church, were no longer attending. And 35% of them said that they were no longer attending church because they didn't feel like it was a place that they could ask their most important questions of life. And there seems like there's been, I, I grew up, I'm a first, my parents were, uh, became Jesus followers, evangelicals in the 70s. So I'm, I'm a first generation evangelical, grew up in the very... Christ against culture uh, sort of attitude that was very common in the 80s and the 90s. Um, and understandably, you know, my parents listen to this and I'm not blaming them for anything. I, I, I can really understand why parents in those years, as they were kind of on the tail end, right, of the sexual revolution, we saw these significant cultural changes. I can understand why Christians hunkered down and said, we're just going to build our own culture and do our own science and do our own movies and do our own music. I get that. But there's so many people that are in my generation uh, that are in their 30s or in, younger in their 20s, and they've experienced only that. But there's all these sorts of questions that that framework didn't allow answers for. I know a, a guy like Miroslav Volf talks about the, the path to knowing God is a path of ascent. And it's been as if on one side you had evangelicalism, which said the path to ascent is only through the Bible. And really what they meant, not just through the Bible, it's through our interpretive lens by which we read the Bible, right? Mm -hmm. That's the only way to have knowledge about the world. And anything that counters that narrative or that interpretive lens or challenges it is, is, is false, right? On the other side, you, had you have naturalism, which has said there's all sorts of these other kinds of questions, the questions that Jordan Peterson is also exploring that are all also off the table. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I'm sure because you're a Calvin College guy, you're, you're probably familiar with, you know, the, the, the work of like Charles Taylor and James yep. K.A. Smith in this yep. secular age. Yep. And when I hear a guy like Peterson, what he's doing is providing haunting experiences 
to people that are trapped in this imminent frame. And it feels a little bit like he's flirting with this, how do we bring what was traditionally, as Christians held, these paths to knowing God, like Aquinas believed that you had revelation, you had special revelation, but you also had general revelation. You had this this common grace that all people could access knowledge about reality and about who God is. And it's like, I don't even think he knows what he's doing because there's times when he starts, you know, probably the biblical series from him is my least favorite in some regard. Cause I go, really? because I, I, I go, can you talk to some actual theologians <laughs> <laughs> from time to time? Talk to some biblical scholars. You know, why not consult a guy like a John Walton before you go into your Genesis series? It's still like, it's really, really intriguing. But then I, then, you know, as a pastor, you, you start talking to people that they're like, oh, you're picking up all these insights from Genesis from Jordan Peterson, you know. You know, there's been 2,000 years of the church wrestling with it. Um, anyways, he's a guy that seems like he's maybe not even fully aware of what he's doing. He He's flirting with bringing people into a conversation where both general revelation and special revelation, though he doesn't use those terms, are now back on the table. Right, right. And there's this there's this concept, this uh, this model that you've talked about. I'd love to get you to share a little bit about it because I I, I think your your model, your language that you've used about God number one and God number two, is really apropos in in this discussion about there's been this division, epistemological division between knowing God or knowing reality, the world that God's created through this pathway and knowing God through this pathway. And it's like these two seem to not meet. And you got a guy like Peterson who's much more uh, obviously leaning on general revelation, but he's also very much intrigued by special revelation. Granted, it's within like this Jungian sort of frame but could you share a little bit about you know your your model? You, you you use this language of God number one, God number two. I just find it really really fascinating and helpful. Sure. Well, I you know this it came out so Jordan Peterson decided he wanted to do this series of talks with Sam Harris, which that in of itself was a very interesting development. And and Sam Harris, of course, is as uh, Jordan Peterson calls him a, a celebrity atheist. And, and Sam Harris, since 9-11, has made a career of attacking Christianity and attacking religion, in many ways attacking, wanting to attack Islam, but Christians live next door, so we'll attack the Christians first. <laughs> and, and Sam Harris, uh, Richard Dawkins, Richard Dawkins has this amazing, this, did this amazing appearance on Justin Brierley's Unbelievable, which is an English radio show, Christian Great radio program. show, that, that always has... Christians and atheists kind of battling, dueling together. And and Richard Dawkins on Unbelievable once was there with a, a Christian pastor and a Jewish scholar. And it was amazing because Richard Dawkins kept saying, well, you're not the kinds of Christians I'm arguing with. It's all those, basically, it's those fundamentalists in Kansas who want to get evolution out of the textbooks. And so, and, and, and so Sam Harris is out there. Christianity is a an obsolete science and ought to be banished, so on and so forth. And 
So in some ways, Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson are on the same page. They're part of my flock as the pastor of the intellectual dark web. You know, if anybody looked at, I have the strangest church imaginable. You know, I've got Joe Rogan who's smoking pot with with um, DMT, with Elon and, Musk, yeah, right. <laughs> and I've got you know I've got I've got Sam Harris in my fold, and I've got the Weinstein's, and you know this is my flock. So it's almost great. like getting tax collectors and zealots together. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So so Peterson wants to talk to Sam Harris, and so so they do these series of talks, and there's something deeply disturbing about Jordan Peterson to Sam Harris. Uh, Malthy Buddha, who's a YouTuber, did a great video on how Jordan Peterson is eating Sam Harris's tribe, which which is exactly what I saw. This people coming back this one way street, coming the other way. And so Peterson and Harris are having this talk and everybody wants, you know, everybody is waiting for the big showdown, which is where Sam Harris is going to finally say, Jordan, you're. You know, it's kind of like a pastor getting confronted, say, oh, so pastor, you're going into the bars and converting, you know, uh, alcoholics. A pastor shouldn't go into bars. And so Sam Harris is like, he's, he's going to confront Jordan Peterson on on flirting with the Christians. Yeah, and right. so, and flirting with this God stuff. And, and so Sam keeps wanting to get Jordan Peterson to, you know, come on, get straightened out, you know, renounce God and all of his all of his doings. And so they have these talks and it's really interesting in these talks because it gets to the end of the first one and time's running out and they haven't had the big confrontation and they continue to ramble on. And finally, Sam Harris says, you know, everybody's here basically to hear you renounce, to have me as the high priest of atheism, have you <laughs> renounced God and all of his doings. And, and Jordan Peterson's like, well, 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 wait a minute. We're not quite sure what this God thing is. And so Peterson then, at this point in the talk, goes through all of these rather esoteric ideas about, well, God is the thing that selects, and God is this, and God is that. But if, again, if you listen very carefully to Jordan Peterson, God is usually an idea. It's a, it's a mental construct. An archetype. An, an archetype. And, and so you get to the end of it, and Sam Harris, out of frustration, kind of interrupts him and says, oh, come on, Jordan, that's not God. You know, that's, you know, that's not the God who would tell you not to masturbate and, and everybody laughs and, and, and both uh, Brett Weinstein's kind of the moderator and, and Brett had listened to what Jordan had been saying and says to Sam, well, no, I can understand Jordan's point. And Sam's like, well, tell me more. And I was listening to this and I thought, well, well, here it is. It's right here. You have the axiomatic God, because Peterson as, as was famous of saying, well, God is the, or your religion are the axioms that you live out in terms of your life. This is, the, this is your framework. This is your archetype. This mm -hmm. is the construct within you that's, that's allowing all of this stuff. And so, well, there's, in a sense, God number one. This is the God of general revelation. This is the God, this is the common God of the philosophers, you know, that the imminent God, the right? imminent God, right. right? The God that is built into all of the stuff of the world. That is the, I often use a riff off Dorothy Sayers and C.S. Lewis guy. He is the author. And so, you know, I asked someone, you know, can Tolkien, can, can Frodo find Tolkien in his world? Where is Tolkien in middle earth? And you think about that. It was so wow. Tolkien is everywhere in middle earth, <laughs> but can Frodo locate Tolkien? And, and so it's that kind of, you know, well, God is everywhere. He's built into the system. 
and and so I realized that, and and Sam Harris is like, no, 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 no. I'm talking about the God that you pray to to find a parking space, and I, I'm I'm talking about the God that, and and Sam Harris just gets Christianity wrong all the time. I mean, he he sets up right. these horrendous straw men, and and many people like uh, David Bentley Hart, in many ways, has said, well. God is the ground of being. Well, God is the ground of being is this God number one. It's the God of general revelation. And and in Christianity, theologically, right from the start, we were taught there's general revelation and there's special revelation, and God uh, bears witness to himself in both. Now, okay, so what's happening with Jordan Peterson and God number one? So God number one is the imminent God. God number two is the transcendent God, the God who speaks, the God we relate to. And and I thought, so okay, so what's really happening with Jordan Peterson? Why is he having this effect? Well, Darwin, in a sense, post-Darwin, uh, in this book, The Metaphysical Club, that Jordan Peterson promotes, as uh, you get to learn a lot about the pragmatists and that, the point in the metaphysical club is that what Darwin really brought to the stage was at Darwin, there was sort of a turning point where you didn't need God anymore to explain the physical world. And so in that sense, in secular, in the secular world, then secularism took a twist before secularism. You could still have God in the public square, but after Darwin, you didn't need him any anymore to explain the secular world. But if you listen to Peterson talk to Sam Harris, the main point Peterson keeps making again and again is that you need this God, this construct that is sacrifice in the future and all of this stuff. You might not need him to explain geology, but you sure do need him to explain psychology mm. and, and how we actually interact with the world. And so suddenly the God of general revelation comes roaring back into the world. And, and, and what had sort of happened with the God number two, the God of special revelation, is that, and we've been seeing this for a long time, that God became, in the words of Christian Smith, a you know moralistic therapeutic, therapeutic deism, deism yeah. a divine butler who was, you know, the God of atheists in foxholes, the God of, you know, people looking for parking spaces, the God of you know, students crying out because they've got an exam and can you please save my butt? Um, but but that's the only God. And that was a very easy God for Sam Harris to attack because it's so prone to projection and all of these things that people had been complaining with for a while. But when God number one and God number two start, finally start coming together in kind of their proper way, well, now the God of creation and the God of redemption are actually working together. And it begins to make sense why then people are once again open to the Christian story, because the Christian story, of course, has God and his imminence and God and his yes. transcendence all together. Oh, so yes. Yes. so that's once, the game changer. That's, that's the right. game changer right there. It's the in, the incarnation. I've been uh, doing a series on uh, calling Understanding Our Meaning Crisis. In the last episode, we uh, talked about uh, the antidote to meaning crisis being a, a possibly, and this is just one facet of it, I think there's, well, I think the primary antidote from a theological, philosophical perspective is a, is somehow reclaiming a sacramental view of the world. Right. It's seeing, because we're trapped in this imminent frame— 
right? We we feel this, uh, you know, Taylor called it the cross pressuring, right? On 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 one hand, we we see the world, and you know, you talked about Darwin. Probably one of the big things with Darwin's language was that it was so negative and so focused so much on the suffering in the world that, you know, you could contend that it was really more a, a theodicy problem that he created that turned people away from the God of, of creation. It seemed like, boy, this God can't be good. I mean, that's one one problem. People feel this this cross-pressuring, and it's like, boy, I don't know on the special revelation side, I see God as creator and God as judge, and he gives me some morals to live by. But where is he in the story? Boy, I, the, I've, I've never heard you say this before, but the the notion of where can Frodo see Tolkien at in the story? And it's like, well, if he looks, it's everywhere. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I grew up I grew up in a very uh, charismatic background, so very different than, than your experiences in, in, in the Dutch Reformed tradition, which has this wonderful emphasis on, on using our God-given faculties of reason. Um, our tradition was very much on the um, mystical side, in the best possible sense, in the best forms of that. On the worst sides of that have been superstition, very um, a flat-earth methodology for doing epistemology has also been very common. I watched, I don't know if you saw the Flat Earth documentary that they have on Netflix. Um, yeah, yeah, very interesting. Very interesting and almost like holding up a mirror in some regards to the way that many of us in evangelicalism have encountered the world, a deep suspicion and uh, conspiratorial attitude towards science and um people feel this pressure right and they feel a sense of i can't make sense of why what's in front of me is endowed with any sort of meaning or purpose and it's like the failure of liberal theology like i mean true like eight, 19th century liberal theology has started denying the resurrection to me is that if we don't actually have it's happy holy week here if we don't have a, a truly fully God, fully man, incarnate Jesus Christ, and we don't have a, a fully bodily resurrection, then our our we we lose the material, the value of the material world and the value of our bodies. And it's like Christ's bodily resurrection goes and says, the physical world is endowed with meaning and purpose, and you are going to be raised to life in this bodily form and Peterson comes around and he looks at this story and he goes, I see something in this story, which is true. Um, you know, some of the concerns I've had, well, maybe I, I'll, I'll turn the, I'll turn it around into a question. When you help people navigate the work of Jordan Peterson pastorally, theologically, what, what weaknesses have you identified that you go, hey, this is a point of conversation. Uh, I think maybe Peterson is off. Maybe he has an incomplete picture of the truth. What have some been some things that you've kind of had to maybe pastorally bring up and go, boy, he's close on this, but maybe maybe there's a way that uh, I can help complete the story. Well, the the most obvious shortcoming tends to be. He's and some people have said this. Well, I've, I've kind of put both sides together. He's got an Augustinian anthropology, which I think is what people find deeply correct and uh, engaging. 
but he, he tends to have a Pelagian soteriology. You have to, it's, it's finally up to you to, to pick your cross up and drag it up that hill. Uh, it's up to you what hill you drag it up on, because actually his, his internal bearing of meaning, well, that works for social justice warriors and bloody postmodernists too. They get it. They derive a huge sense of meaning by world saving within their frame. And he would say, right. yeah, but there's other reasons to creak it. Yeah, but that's in terms of meaning. So, and and also at some point, it there's a stoicism in. I don't think he likes me saying this because David um, uh, from Rebel Wisdom kind of put it to him once, and he seemed a little annoyed. But there's a stoicism in what he's doing. In that, it's up to you to save yourself, mm. and you can you you might be able to by you might be able to rescue yourself from nihilism by via meaning, but you're actually not going to save your body from decay. Mm. And, and this, you know, this is where, you know, my Calvinism gets engaged in that you can, you can save, you can save all kinds of things in this world. You can save yourself from all kinds of things in this world with all kinds of power, but you can't save yourself from death. And, and this is where, especially on Holy Week, you know, only Jesus is going to save, you know, only Jesus is going to be able to recreate you as the, as the living nephesh you were made to be. And, and in fact, perfect you from the, from the reign of sin and death and selfishness in your heart. Uh, you can do a lot of perfecting, but there are limits to the degree that you can. And there are whole ranges of people in this world, and this is part of part of what I dealt with in as a missionary in the Dominican Republic, because you know I'm dealing mostly there with Haitians for whom their 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 lot is cast in this world. They were they were born uh, they were poor, born poor and desperate in a very difficult place in the world. And truth be told, and many of them, I never heard of a suicide you know, amongst the Haitians. Their crisis isn't meaning. Their right. world is full of meaning because they are they are struggling to survive. And so, in some ways, um, the meaning crisis that Verveke and Peterson are addressing—that's the fat man's disease. That's the that's the affluent world's problem. Wow. That the poor Haitians didn't have that problem. Poor Haitians had another problem. They were they they were locked into a life that was short, brutish, and and difficult. And except for the occasional lottery winners that make their way to the United States and maybe can enjoy all the affluence we have, they're going to die of some stupid disease in some wretched place in the world. And most of human history has lived that way, and billions of people live that way today. And meaning isn't their problem. <laughs> and Jesus, Jesus offers them something that Jordan Peterson can't. And what he offers them is resurrection and redemption for the pain and suffering in this world. And so that's why I I love what Jordan Peterson is doing. I I deeply appreciate the man and and what he's doing for Western civilization, but it can't match up to what Jesus offers me. So, you know, I, I remain a Christian pastor. Wow. 
I mean, even on the existential side, even if we were to talk to us fat Westerners, right, that are dealing with this meaning crisis, you know, the existentialist would be quick to point out that the the ultimate absurdity is death. Yeah. Right. And to actually be able to transcend that in, is is a is the ultimate meaning problem. Yeah. Um, and so to have a, a bodily resurrection, a, a living hope is is something beyond what Peterson's offering. Uh, do you ever get questions just about um you know how much how much similarity or uh dissonance do you see when when Peterson talks about the logos? That seems to be a, a major thrust of his work and he, when he talks about Christ, he refers to him as the logos and there's a lot of things when I hear him talk about that I go, "Wow, that's he said something in an interview with Joe Rogan that I was like, how in the world is this guy so stinking spot on that he nailed in like two sentences what systematic theologians would write entire books on? And he said, boy, I should have written it down for our conversation, but I'm going to paraphrase it here. He said essentially that that Christian ethics and Christian morality is nothing more than copying the meta pattern of Christ's life in the world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, all right, well, let's have the altar call now and uh, yeah. go home, pass the plates. Yeah. And then there's other times where he talks about the logos as, you know, in this Jungian sense, it's only an archetype, right? And we never actually get to a real ontological Christ or a Christ of history. Uh, when you hear Peterson talk about Christ, what are some ways that you go, amen? What are some ways that you've gone, uh, hang on, we got to pump the brakes for a second? Right. Well, it's when you talk about logos, it's important to remember that the the Gospel of John riffs on a longstanding philosophical conversation and appropriates it. That's what the that's, right. that's what yep. the first chapter of the Gospel of John does because the you know, the Gnostics had used the Logos. Um, many philosophical schools had been working on that. And it's it's very important when you listen to Jordan Peterson, m much of the time when he talks about Logos, he says, I'm speaking psychologically. And that gets into this conversation that he had with Sam Harris in terms of, you know, you might, you might thought, you might have gotten rid of God in terms of with Darwin and origins, but you, you still need him in terms of psychology. And so his, if, if Jesus is true and the God of redemption is the God of creation, we should expect that all this stuff will scale. So that if, if Peterson is dead on right psychologically about a lot of this stuff, it's, it's going to be true at many other layers too. And that's in a sense, Peterson's answer to the resurrection, even though he remains an agnostic, his answer to the resurrection continues to scale pretty well. And, and that's why sometimes he says things psychologically that, that seem to resonate very well in terms of much more ontological and metaphysical claims that Christianity makes. So sometimes, yeah, there, there's sometimes he says things that's like, wow, that just like you said, he just he just packaged that perfectly. Now, what was the second part of your question? The the yeah, but 
Yeah, the yeah, but I mean, what are what are some areas where when you hear Peterson talk about Christ, uh, you go, ah, boy, that I don't know if we're I don't know if we're talking about the same person. I've lamented, and I talked about, um, I've talked about before that we we again we we seem like we always there's there's always another archetype and an archetype behind that, but we never actually get to like a bedrock, real ontological or historical. Christ, uh, ontological in the you know in the sort of John one sense, the, the pre-existing logos, the Word made flesh. Um, I don't know. Do, do you have any areas where you hear Peterson talk about Christ and you go, "Well, I think I think you're you're missing it slightly." Yeah. Well, I, I think you're right in that he he remains agnostic, and when he gets pressed on the the question of the resurrection. He will he will say things like, "Well, I I don't know the real capacity if we really embody this logos, what it could accomplish." And that's why he remains an agnostic on the on the physical resurrection of Jesus. But also, it comes out with one of his more famous uh, one of his more famous assertions out of the Sermon on the Mount: his misreading of the meek. And yes. I made actually made a couple of videos on this a while ago, and Quillette, a piece just picked uh, the sheathing it. of the swords thing. I'm like, that's, that's a right. prime example of like, dude, just talk to an actual biblical scholar, pick up a commentary. That's right. Like, where did you read I that know. from? I, I heard that. And You're so like, brilliant, but right. yet he does many times the same things that a guy like Sam Harris and like Richard Dawkins do, which are these. I'm like, can you engage the real? academic literature. Anyway, sorry. So talk a little bit about that. Well, his misreading of Meek makes perfect sense. And, and there really is a point that he makes in that Jesus is, and, and okay, it's Holy Week, so we're getting into Jesus' trial, okay? Jesus is, on one hand, flat out so dangerous and powerful that the, the, the Romans— and the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, and the Zealots, and the Essenes, these people couldn't agree on anything to the degree that they're all trying to kill each other, but they could agree that the world was better without Jesus and so that they should kill him, okay? And and that's important because what that shows is the, the power of Jesus, and whether you understand that politically or whether you understood that just in terms of his miraculous power, because think about this. Anyone who can raise the dead with a word— well, we kill people regularly. That's easy to do. Bring them back to life? That can't do that. <laughs> Jesus can bring them back to life, which means if he could if he can raise someone with a word, he could kill them with a word and and he can still a storm. I mean, storms wrecked ancient battles regularly. I mean, world the world was world history was moved because a storm came through and destroyed a navy. Well, and attributed to the gods, right? That that was the right. sign the gods were on your side. Exactly. So so Jesus can do these things. And and it's amazing in the Gospel of John, after he raises Lazarus to the dead, from the dead, the religious leaders say, we got to stop this guy. And and so on Peterson's point about Jesus and power, well, that's true. He's enormously powerful. But the part that, G, that, that the Jesus Peterson can't understand is this this Jesus who had all privilege by being the very son of God empties himself and 
Jesus walks into his trial with Pontius Pilate, and you know the way that all the Gospels write that up, everyone knows he's the the Romans don't have you know everybody knows that the you know uh, this Galilean if he raises an army and starts complaining about Caesar yeah we'll kill him but and so everybody knows from his conversation with Pilate that Jesus can get out of this capital sentence easily basically just by a little bit of corruption offering Pilate just a little something something so Pilate will let him go and and Pilate even is even under pressure from his wife to do that and Jesus doesn't go there and so Jesus becomes the lamb of God to take away the sin of the world Jesus becomes meek and and also and this this meekness thing gets into the point I was making about the about the Haitians that is there hope for people who have no hope because they have no power. Well, the, you read that in the Old Testament is the hope is, well, they 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 look to the to the Lord of creation. But a materialist will look at that and say, yeah, but they go to the grave. But if you're not a materialist, you will say, yeah, but this is not the whole story. And you get a glimpse of that, and and even it came out in Peter Jackson's film when they're they're having the battle of of Minas Tirith and and Gandalf and and Pippin are 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 kind of they're losing the battle and Pippin's kind of you know oh, we're going to die and and Gandalf this is the end and Gandalf is like no this isn't the end Pippin there's there's more to come and in that sense Gandalf sees Tolkien and Gandalf sees into a bigger world and and introduces Pippin into you know, this this isn't the end. This is important. This is real. This is vital. There's things at stake. And see, Christianity keeps that balance. Yes. And and sometimes gets it wrong because sometimes right. when right. you hear evangelicals say things like, Well, we're only passing through, I'll fly away. That's too dismissive of the world that God loves in John 3:16. But Christianity actually gets that balance right. But Peterson is struggling with that balance. And you you know you get that balance right if you can understand Jesus saying, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Well, who, well evangelicals might say, well, why should we inherit the earth? Yeah, it's ah, getting destroyed anyways, right? That's right. So, and But see, the Bible gets all of these balances right. And Peterson, he has to deform meekness in order for his theology to work, but his theology is still fundamentally agnostic. Wow. Do you have time for one more question, Paul? Sure. Yep. Sure. Okay. That brings me uh, uh, brings me to a, I think a pretty important question. P um, people have critiqued Peterson about perhaps his um, maybe. Maybe they've critiqued that Peterson seems some of his ideology seems to just reinforce the status quo. Um, they perhaps have wondered whether or not Peterson doesn't take seriously enough systematic sin, right? He he seems to take quite seriously in some regards systematic sin, but he takes very seriously personal, individual sin and the the capacity that individuals have for terrible malevolence. And he does a great job of highlighting, as you said, that sort of Augustinian truth about, about the capacity for humans to do terrible things in the world. 
and yet simultaneously people have wondered whether or not uh his he is simply someone that's okay with reinforcing the current structures political structures hegemonic structures uh and maybe doesn't take seriously enough systematic sin usually you hear this critique from from people in more postmodern schools of thought right and I'm not, you know, I think postmodernism deserves nuanced evaluations because there's some truth to it. There's some truth about the seriousness of sin when amplified on structural levels, on on institutional levels. And yet there's also, I've, I've called it this sort of um, deconstructor, chaotic deconstruction that can also come. And I think maybe Peterson is reacting in large part to this sort of chaotic deconstructive force. Um, you know, I've actually talking about Lord of the Rings. I, I've compared it recently to like the rise of Sauron. You know, we've got this this malevolent force that's just seeking to destroy and to lay waste to all that's good, even in a world that's filled with brokenness. I wonder whether or not sometimes Peterson doesn't take the postmodern critique seriously enough. Um, whether or not he is. Um, able to really see that there are you know one thing he often talks about right is he goes you know there there's there's always there's always a um he wouldn't say hegemonic structure what would he say he always talks about plumbers right mm -hmm. plumbers you're going to buy you're going to purchase services from the best plumber around. So people get to the top of systems. They get to the top of the pyramid simply through, in a sort of Pelagian way, their their own due diligence, their own work ethic. And uh, he seems at times to not be as concerned about the possibility that those people in Haiti or the Dominican Republic, as you're referring to, simply have no possible chance of just pulling themselves up by their bootstraps unless they win some sort of lucky lottery to make it out of there. Um, what do you think? Do you think that's an area of weakness for Peterson? Or do you just think his message right now is just so needed to counter that sort of chaotic deconstruction? I, I think when it comes to his, his social... I actually find him quite balanced on the social critique. And I think if you listen to his lectures, the maps of meaning and personality, you can hear the balance. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of the imbalance is because I think Peterson is right that a lot of people are extremely naive about their capacity to write injustice mm. and and actually i just did a little twitter i just did a little about a five tweet little twitter story last week about this or earlier this week about this and it, and it goes something like this you know as as a a person who grew up at a racial reconciliation church mostly black community deeply involved with black folks in my own church about Half the church is black. Most of my leadership is black in this church. I, I am by no means blind to the the racism that is that is built into this world. And and so when after the you know the, the civil rights movement was able to was able to quite effectively challenge racism built into the law. People then said, OK, well, let's challenge the racism built into structures. Oh, OK, good. 
here's the difficulty. We people say, well, racism plus institutions is systemic racism. Oh, I think that's I think that's true. Racism will get filtered through institutions and have effects on people and things. I think all that is true. Here's the difficulty. When we look at institutions, we say, well, we ought to be able to then eliminate racism from the institution. I say, ah, you can't even eliminate racism from your heart. Wow. You just think you're going to be able to look at it, this institution, spot all the racism and get rid of it. Well, anybody who's ever been responsible for building an institution knows this, these, these inter, these human interconnections, these human communities are enormously complex. And, and pastors, for example, that one of the chief jobs of a pastor is to kind of be the steward of the institutional culture because culture eats intention for lunch. I mean, culture is so powerful and pervasive. But as a pastor who has this idea of what we'd like the culture to be, your capacity to shape that culture, that's all. That's almost always done kind of like a chiropractor, not really like a, a chiropractor who's wrenching things. It's kind of some of these chiropractors have these little poppers and they just kind of pop things. And you're like, well, that doesn't do anything. That's how pastors work. It's this just tiny little popping most of the time, because otherwise you rip the institution apart. And what Peterson says is this, this idea that you're going to somehow wade into these enormous cultural institutions and just, you know, rip them apart to, in order to get rid of racism or sexism or all of these things and not have enormous collateral damage. He says, well, we've seen that tried. Um, well, look at the communist world. They thought they could do that, so they used tremendous power to rip things apart. And and Peterson says, when you do that, the, the unintended consequences are going to be so catastrophic, you're basically going to break your systems. And, and, and I think Peterson is right, and I think this is actually— and something will emerge in that vacuum, too. That's right. That's right. And, and, and I, I listen to people—so I hear— a lot of white people say things like, oh, you know, it's the systemic racism and, you know, black folks don't give a ch aren't given a chance. I say, OK, why don't you get out of your high paying, high status job and give it to some person of color? Well, I, I like my job. It's like, yeah, everybody, everybody wants everyone else to be a communist, but they want to be a capitalist mm -hmm. because they like their money. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think Peterson is right that in terms of society, you're not just going to pull these, pull these things apart, and and not have all kinds of people actually get hurt in it. You're you're going to have to really pay attention if if you want to make change because that's how that's how that's how complicated all of these systems are. Even in a marriage, I mean, people think. You'd say to someone, okay, so what don't you like about your marriage? Well, anybody, they'll, they'll give you a nice little list. Right. All right, change it. <laughs> <laughs> There's only one other person in that situation. And, well, you've been spending the last how many years of your marriage trying to change that other person? How's that gone? So, you, you know, kind of this idea that you're just going to fix the world because oh, you've you just learned about racism. Oh my gosh, there's racism. Like, <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah. And he ain't going to, and this is again, where my Calvin is, you know, and so I did a conversation with uh, Mr. Reagan, whose channel is blown up because uh, he came to one of my meetups in Southern California. And he asked me, you know, are you a bigot? And it's like, yes. Well, of course I'm a bigot. I'm a sinner. I've got racism in my heart. I've got sexism in my heart. I've got all kinds of evil in my heart that I'm not going to get rid of it just by saying, oh, I'm a racist. You know, no, it doesn't work that way. I'm deeply, the stuff is deeply ingrained in me. In and your I'm operating not, system. That's right. And and I'm just not going to get rid of it because, oh, Paul, here, there's a little racist thought that you had. That's the only one I exhibited. I've got all these other. I said, well, why are you a racist? You grew up amongst black people. Yeah, it's in me. And it, I'm, ne I'm not going to get rid of it in this lifetime. So does that mean that I'm I'm soft on racism? No, but I'm pretty realistic about, you know, how deep racism and all of these things go. And so the idea that you're going to just how easily get rid of it in society. Well, but there's many other aspects of my sin, too. So I'm, you know, I'm pretty I'm a pretty pretty deeply augustinian and calvinist on that score so i i again if if you want to hear peterson's balance you have to listen to maps of meaning the kinds of things he says there because i think he's thoroughly augustinian but when it comes to these political conversations in particular he's basically saying people are naive and i think he's correct hmm Oh, I tend to agree with you. I just threw out the question to see what your your response would be. Yeah, I I tend to agree. The emphasis there is on the the transformation of the individual. It's pulling the log out of your own eye, right? Before picking the speck of dust out of your brother's eye. That's right. Well, Paul, thank you so much for taking the time. If people were going to connect with the, the conversations that you are hosting and some of the work you're doing, what are what are some good places they can go to? And of course, I'll put all these links in the description to the to the podcast as well. But I'm pretty easy to find. My my YouTube channel is Paul Vanderclay. My Twitter handle is Paul Vanderclay. My email is Paul Vanderclay. The only probably uh, paulvanderclay.me is my blog. So if see one of the nice things about having a strange name is I can I can use it everywhere and there's no competition for it. <laughs> well, from one Paul who has a strange name to another Paul who has a strange name, I agree with you. Paul, thank you so much for taking time during Holy Week and uh, blessings on your, your Good Friday service and Easter service. I'm so thankful for the conversations you have. And one of the things I just have to highlight about, about Paul and one of the things I appreciate as I've listened, the conversations that he's having with uh this might sound pejorative, but it's not intended to be with just regular people, um, just people that are in the midst of life like you and I and your neighbor are. So I think the conversations that he's ha having really, really highlight that you don't have to get a Ph.D. in theology to do theology. Theology is everywhere, yeah. whether you're a plumber whether you've, boy, I think I heard a great interview with a guy that was uh, like a mathematician maybe that you had on, or he got into some deep stuff about math. I've had one math class in undergrad and that was it, but I loved it. So I love the conversation you're happening. And, and I really love, I really appreciate um, 
talking about this stuff doesn't have to be somber. I so sincerely appreciate when you guys listen to Paul and hit the conversations he has, there is a real joy. Um, I saw somebody on your YouTube channel say something about, oh, please stop laughing. And I was like, shut up. Your laugh is so contagious. It's wonderful. I, I love it, Paul. So thanks for taking the time for the conversation. Oh, my pleasure. This was This was so much fun. Again, if you wanted to connect with Paul Vanderclay and the work that he's doing, you can check out, I'll have all of his links in the description of this podcast. Also want to invite you to consider becoming a supporter on Patreon. And if you think that the work that I'm doing is valuable and the conversations we're hosting, I would encourage you to support that. There are tiered rewards if any of that stuff interests you. And again, you can check that out. Uh, The link for that will also be in the description to this podcast. I hope that you feel comfortable if you have a question or a difference of opinion reaching out to me, whether that's in the comment section or whether that is on Twitter or Instagram. You can follow me at Paul Ann Leitner uh, at Twitter. And I'd love to hear your perspectives, your own questions. I'd love to hear your um, even differences of opinion on this stuff. So as always, this is intended to be a dialogue. So I hope you feel comfortable participating in it. So thanks again for your support, for listening in, for your reviews and questions in the dialogue that many of you are already participating in. Till next time.